Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the podcast where we talk about I love her, Jane Austen, and give a big double middle finger to all the haters. I am Kristen, and I'm joined by Maggie. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and we're talking today, we, uh, um, one of our followers, one of our listeners brought to our attention, there is this one-man show by Adrian Lucas, who played Wickham, right, in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice called Being Mr. Wickham, and it is put on by a theater company called The Original Theater Company, and they recorded it and are streaming it, so you can pay 20 pounds sterling (laughs) and watch it, (laughs) and so we had to watch it, and we had to review it for you guys, so you loved it. I did. I loved it. I thought it was so fun. Actually, um, Bayard, my husband, he sat and watched it with me. He wasn't sure if he was going to watch it because, you know, he took up woodworking in the pandemic and the lockdown. And he was like, well, I'll start it. And then maybe we'll see. And he was riveted. We both were. And it's only 60 minutes, actually. When I say it felt longer, I mean that as a compliment in that it just felt like a full experience. Uh, And then I realized it was only 60 minutes. So it's not going to be like a night at the theater where you have to, you know, don't give your entire evening and then it's two and a half hours or whatever with an intermission. It was great. I I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It was, it was so easy to, it went down easy. I, I am not efficient and aficionado of the theater. I think, a com- and especially one man shows or one woman shows, they break the fourth wall, right? Because they're talking directly to you right. in a very intimate style. And then when you're actually there in person, my social anxiety flares up really bad uh, because I feel that personal connection that I can't break eye contact or that I would be rude if I'm not listening, but sometimes I'm exhausted. and I just need to take a break from listening. I don't know, but this was good. And it, it was just enough so that I felt like I got a dose. I got where it was going. I got all the big laugh lines and I felt an emotional resolution, a catharsis. And um, it went down easy. And so like for backstory, just so people know kind of what it is, it's a monologue in the character of George Wickham, co-written by Adrian Lucas, who is the actor who played Wickham. And in the, if you buy the streaming, you can also see an interview at the end of the show where it's like a, a very casual interview where he's talking about it. And he's like, actors have to love the characters that they're playing. And so he really embodies that character and tries to find out what makes Wickham tick and what would have happened after the events of Pride and Prejudice. Because the other thing you need to know is the monologue takes, or the one-man show, is an evening with Wickham in his study. He's swilling brandy. It's his 60th birthday. And importantly, if he had lived until age 60, it was no longer the Regency era either. It was now the Victorian era. Right. And so he's reflecting back on everything that happened and everything, also the shift in like morals since the Regency and a historical context that brought in as well. He, what caught me, and I don't know if this is true for you, but right at the beginning, he tells an anecdote about him being out on the town in London and seeing Lord Byron yeah. <laughs> and just like idolizing this rake. He's like, oh man, that could have been me. That should have been my life, right? <laughs> I thought it was so great. I don't usually have a lot of patience for male midlife crisis or male <laughs> like looking back on their life kind of musings because I feel like we just get that all the time. But I loved this. And maybe it's just that Adrian Lucas is so charismatic. Maybe it's that 
he was such an amazing performer. Maybe it's that the writing was so good, but it was just everything. I, like I said, I was just riveted and normally I'd be like, whatever, but I just, I was into it from the very moment it started. And maybe it's just been so long since I saw theater, you know, cause I've been, yeah. we've been, the whole world's been in this pandemic. It hasn't been safe. And then we had a baby. And so we try to be super careful and it's just been a really long time, but I was all in on it. And I thought that it's, a regular monologue is hard enough. Like just a couple of minutes of commanding attention alone is hard enough. Uh, but just from a performance aspect, like maintaining that energy and the audience's attention for a full hour, I thought was a real feat. I thought that was really impressive. One of the reasons it's so clever and one of the reasons it works is because you're drawn in from the first by how charming he is, by this charming anecdote that feels very Wickham. And you're like, I'm hearing the real Wickham now. I'm hearing the real story. And then he wants to draw you into what happened with Darcy. And he starts telling you the story of his grievances, just like Elizabeth Bennett probably like would have heard it right. with his charm, with his sense of being injured and, oh, everybody just likes me better. And, and Darcy is such a stick in the mud and was just jealous of me that he makes his case, but he, you remember, is an unreliable narrator. And so you're caught between two worlds of, do I trust this guy? Yes, yes. Or, or is he just feeding me more horse shit? Yeah. <laughs> there is one thing that he says that's kind of a slip that's not factually accurate from Pride and Prejudice. And so then you're even, when I noticed that, most people would, might not have, then I was even more like, oh my God, I've been caught by the Wickham charm. <laughs> What was it? What did he say? It was that when he went to Darcy, you know, after Darcy's father died. Oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're going to say. And what I was going to say about that, I know we were going to get right into it. Sorry to cut you off. I actually believe that he told us the entire truth the whole time, except for what you're about to say. And you have to remember what we know about this comes from the letter. Yes. So we don't know if it's factually accurate, Kristen, because the narrator did not tell us this, does she? Well, actually, we do know. Okay. Because, and like, let, let me just set it up for the listeners, and okay. then I'll tell you, then I'll break it down. So in Wickham's narrative, he has been at school, he's been womanizing, he goes back to Pemberley, <laughs> and Mr. Darcy's father says, George, you're going to be the vicar at Kimpton, right? Kimpton's the name of the village. And he's like, I know you've you've lost your way, but you're going to be the vicar. I, I believe in you. You can do it. Wickham's relating the story. It's extremely touching. He says, oh, I was so touched. And I was I was on board. I was going to be the vicar. And then he, you know, the father dies. Wickham goes to Darcy the Younger. And uh, Mr. Darcy says, you ought not to be a vicar. And doesn't even allow him to do it. Just says, no, you can't do it. I'm not allowing it. Right. Well, Darcy's version of the story in his letter to Elizabeth is that Wickham came to him and declared his right. intention of never becoming a clergyman. I'm not going to do it. Like, there's no way I'm going to do that. You need to pay me off and I'll go away. Exactly. And Wickham so, says that he actually, so in the version in the play, it does follow what Wickham tells Lizzie that he was denied the living. He walked in and Darcy was like, no, here's a check. Bye. But there's a moment at the end of Pride and Prejudice. And I checked this in the actual text of the book where Wickham has already eloped with Lydia. 
He comes back to Longbourn. He and Lizzie are having a conversation in which he's still very oily and charming and trying to justify himself. And he's like, do you, did you go by the village of Kempton? Um, and she's like, I don't recollect that we did. And he, he's like, oh, it's the living I should have had. And she says to him, I did hear there was a time when sermon making not so palatable to you as it seems to be a present, right? Like I did hear that you didn't want to be a clergyman. And then she says, you actually declared your resolution of not taking orders and were compensated accordingly. Mm -hmm. So she says to him, you said you declared your resolution of not taking orders. And he does not contradict that. I still don't think that that's, but if that happened, because if that wasn't true, Mr. Darcy, <laughs> if that, well, no, but if that wasn't true, he would have said, uh, I never said that. I never but declared my I resolution. Don't think he would have because he knew the jig was up. Oh. Like, what would he gain from pushing back on her on that point? He already knew the jig was up. He already knew she knew in very typical, charming Slytherin fashion. He just pivoted. um okay so sure but like i hope we'll stay friends yeah yeah, yeah. but i love that i actually believe everything he told us except that and then the question is one is that what happened did darcy actually be like this isn't happening here's money probably not right but possibility two is Wickham still actively lying or three? Has it been so long that he just believes mm. in bullshit? Because I'm sure I say things that I believe are true that I just convinced myself were true. So at this point, like there's really no way to know. And I like that we still don't know. Yeah. The ambiguity is totally there. And I think all of your scenarios are completely plausible. And that's what makes it such an arresting you know, it sets your mind to work when you hear his yeah. recital of things. I thought that the structure of this was also so good because it's not like he sits down and he's like, let me tell you about how everything started at the beginning. And then I'll tell you about how everybody ended up. It's, it just felt very, it, that because that would be unnatural, right? Right. It felt very natural. He peppered the history of what happened through the course of the show, talking about other things. And then at the end, he does get into like, oh, and this is what happened to Mary and this happened to Kitty, but it, it felt very, you're just chatting. Organic. Yeah, it, yeah, felt, it yeah, felt very I organic. It. Yeah, it, it, it definitely at times, um, the anecdotes veer for one thing to another, but then they return to a touch point, right? And it, one of the touch points is what's happening right outside his window of his study when he's talking to you, because a young woman is eloping that night with her uh, secret lover. And so he's really rooting them on, which is so charming in its own way. And then reflecting, he's giving you like a meta commentary about life and love and tie yourself, yeah. go to the anvil and <laughs> well, it's valid. go to Gretna green, right? Like, will she go through with it? Will yeah. She, but it's validation for him Yeah, and the choices that he and Lydia made. Oh, the other thing I do not believe when he said is that basically he took Lydia away because he worried for her virtue. Oh yes. That is some bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So his elopement with Lydia from Brighton was supposedly according to him, because she had made such a spectacle of herself with the officers that Wickham became concerned for her virtue and that someone else would take it. And so he was just doing the right thing eloped with her, truly felt for her when Darcy came along with the money. He's like, of course I took it. It was to our benefit. It was the right thing to do. But like he really intended to marry her, which 
if he really intended to marry her from the start, he would have taken her to Gretna probably, right? Yeah. yeah. But what I do believe what he said is he was like, it was basically a spur of the moment thing. We were talking to each other and we were like, let's be crazy. Let's go do this. And and I do believe that because I feel like we twist ourselves around trying to think of like, what's Wickham's motivation with this? Why would he do it? How does it like link back to him humiliating Darcy? Blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? They are totally the type of people who would get drunk and be like, let's go. Like think about how stuff in college happens and things like that. I could definitely see it just being a spur of the moment. <laughs> yeah. Like- thinks about the consequences. Yeah. <laughs> It's not, let's go get a tattoo. It's like, go to Gretna. Let's go to Vegas. It's like Whitney. When Whitney went to Vegas and got married. (laughs) So, and and supposedly they have a a happy marriage. They keep it spicy with their their jealousies and flirtations. (laughs) flirtations And there is some things about it being a one-man show that did sometimes it was just actually listening to a drunk guy rambling and you kind of are like... (laughs) Um, but one of the things that they did that they chose to do, and apparently the script went through a ton of rewrites, but this is something I didn't like at all, was that he veers into an anecdote about when he was a boy. And of course, Darcy gets to go to Eton, right, when to, when he goes off to school. But Wickham's father doesn't have the money. So Wickham is sent to this cut rate, like, doctor, whatever school, school for yeah. boys. It went into a very Jane Eyre place of, oh, we were physically abused by the headmaster and it went I very there dark. Was definite like sexual abuse as well. That was it. Implied. It was so dark and it, it felt like it was from a different book, but maybe in a way that's good, right? Because you're taking the character out of the context of Pride and Prejudice. And we have to remember Pride and Prejudice was very much the two inch bit of ivory. I mean, like, I, I know you're going to bring this up, but the Napoleonic Wars were raging yeah. and you forget that he joined the army. He was going to Waterloo. I mean, he, yeah. and in this monologue, he talks about his experiences at Waterloo, which you forget that that would have been the consequence of that. I, I didn't, I didn't mind that part because I, one of the things I liked about this was I'm, I'm making like a waving motion with my hand because it ebbed and flowed in terms of emotion. And that was definitely one where it was very intense and sad. And I think also helps to explain why Wickham has a total rejection of authority because like when he was a young child, his, I don't, this is probably a poor example. My dad went to Catholic school and he still is angry at the nuns for the way they were treated. (laughs) And how they would hit them and stuff like that when they got into trouble. And I, my dad is not like a rake. <laughs> and I don't think his level of abuse was anywhere near the same. But I'm saying like, I understand it as like a rejection of authority from that point on. The boys in the school rose up and basically like beat this guy and ran off. And he ran home and everyone ran for the hills and left. It was almost like a Lord of the Flies. Yeah. They like rode up and rose up in rebellion. And I think like for his character, it made sense. And I liked having ebb and flows in terms of intensity. Yeah. And then the Battle of Waterloo was also another where, you know, it's Wickham. It's funny. Ha ha ha. He wants to seduce everyone. And like, then I remember being in war and seeing my friends killed next to me and how it's a roll of the dice. This man's two steps forward and he dies and I don't. And someone, I, I think someone who's 60 and looking back, Wickham wouldn't have been, you can't maintain that level of frivolity your entire life just because of experience. And so for him, that was 
the experience that was a little grounding. It definitely my job and everything. I work for I work for our Department of Veterans Affairs, and like PTSD is very front and center with what I do. Like I very much uh, thought that was a very powerful part of the show. When you put these characters into historical context, it changes. You know, and as you, the reader, grow through the different stages of your life it changes how you look back and reflect on these characters so much. And that is a little bit like what this is like. It's like holding up a crystal to the light and twisting it and seeing all these different facets come through. I mean, he hadn't been in Waterloo, obviously, but during the events of Pride and Prejudice, but um, that made him a fuller, more rounder character in this particular play. And I love that Demi came into it. I, Adrian Lucas went so detailed, like paid so much attention to detail in Pride and Prejudice. And he's a Jane Austen fan. You know, he's read all the books. He says this at the at the end that I loved that they brought Denny in and it was them against the world, you know, in in the gambling hells, you know, getting scrappy. But uh, we can't forget that war changes people. It changes economies. It changes I love this author and I talk about it so much on, on Twitter. So if you follow me on Twitter, you know, I love this author, KJ Charles, who writes a series. She writes a lot about a lot of different historical periods in Britain, but one of her series is set in the Regency era. And one of the characters it, she writes male, male romances mm. mostly. So one of the characters is like a dandy. He's like, incredibly dressed up from head to toe in the latest fashions. He's very flamboyant in his dress. And you kind of think of him as this like foppish, you know, like um, kind of fussy, very into cleanliness kind of like person, kind of like a Beau Brummel type. But then you realize that he's been in war. He was in the cavalry at Waterloo and he has sort of a body horror from all of like the carnage he witnessed. So it's almost like an OCD type of thing where like the obsession with appearance and cleanliness and stuff is a reaction to what he saw. Yeah, exactly. And I just thought that that was, anyway, this is kind of far off the point, but um, it's like, we're saying like everything that happens builds you into like a richer person with more layers. And it was really interested to see, interesting to see Wickham in the Victorian age, looking back on Georgian events and happenings. And the first anecdote he tells, I I brought up Byron, but it also has to do with this, this uh, historical character. What was her name? Harriet Wilson. Yeah. Harriet Wilson. I was not familiar with her, but he gets into this whole thing about how she was like um, a, what would you call her? I would call her a like Kim Kardashian yeah. of the time. <laughs> she she sleeps like, with all the. Well, I don't mean to imply that Kim Kardashian sleeps with her, but what I'm saying is she <laughs> was like the most like a uh, glittering member of the stuff like in Bridgerton, she's the diamond, right? She's like <laughs> the, the girl that everybody wants. Men want to be with her. Women want to be her. She was like, everybody knew her movements. Everybody listened to the gossip. Everybody knew what she was doing. Uh, and in the beginning of the show, like not only is it Wickham's 60th birthday and he's reflecting on that, he's learned that she's died. And so it yeah. really is like then an end of an era. Like we, like you were saying, we've come into the Victorian era, the woman who kind of represented beauty and lust and stuff for what, for his lifetime has now passed. And so that's like a big blow for him. 
Yeah. And Byron, he also mentions Byron has died. This, this, this rake, this like model of rakishness. And that's also sort of passed out of his life. And he mentions that he and Lydia have two children who are both moral upstanding. I loved it. He was like, can you believe it? We had these two children. And then I don't want to give like everything away, but then he also mentions that they are actually friendly with Darcy and Lizzie and they have two kids who are out of control. (laughs) So like he and Lydia had the like uh, moral upstanding children and Darcy and Lizzie have the kids that are just like crazy and messes. And I think that's really funny. That was one thing that rung weirdly true to me, even though it's not what you would expect. Certainly not what Jane Austen might've expected for her characters, but he does say that he and Darcy reconcile in a way that he and Lydia are welcome to Pemberley now. Mm -hmm. At first it was for the sake of the children meeting each other. And there's this beautiful mirrored scene when his children meet Darcy's children, both fathers urging them on, which is exactly the way he and Darcy met both fathers urging them on, right? Be friends, be friends. But no, I mean, it's totally true. Like you might have all these issues with people in your family or friends and stuff. And then he basically says like, we just, we couldn't stay. How do you keep the cousins apart? Like they were just always saying like, when are we going to visit? When do we get to see our cousins? And when you have the kids, it's like, everything is for the kids now. Like in my family, it was so weird for a long time. We didn't have kids. My brother has two sons, but he didn't have them until he was in his mid thirties. And I obviously just had my son a year ago. And so Christmas, it's like all these gifts. And we're kind of like, what are we doing? Like Christmas is for the kids. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So like, it's just kind of one of those things, like at some point you're just like, well, it's, it's like, it's for the kids. And then when they just are dying to be together, you kind of bury the hatchet. I yeah. Guess. And he, I felt that he took it a step further though. And he said, we're two furnaces that were banked. Yeah. It's like, sometimes when you have such a strong affiliation with someone in childhood and you've grown through so many experiences There can be that youthful anger at each other and that splinter, but the older you get, the more you just have nostalgia for your youth and encompassing that person and feeling a need to go home again or to cleave back to the things from your childhood and almost wanting that sort of a mellow rivalry. Well, let's also not underestimate the power of things basically working out for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yes, Darcy ran off with Lydia and it was awful and it could have ruined the family. And then he was forced to marry her, but like they stay together. And he basically says like, we're happy. We're tempestuous and we fight and we do all this stuff, but that's how we are. And he's like, we're the perfect match. She's me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Who else are we going to be with? And then obviously things worked out for Darcy. Like he ended up with Lizzie and like the woman of his dreams, basically like the thing he didn't know he wanted. But like when things work out, it's a lot easier to forgive. Yes, for sure. And to look back on the things that used to seem so important to you that now just. Yeah. If either one of them had ended up alone, like say Lizzie, like died in childbirth tragically and Darcy's just sitting in his big lonely house stewing, that would be completely different. Or Lydia and Wickham implode and yeah. separate. And then he's just like drunk all the time and gambling and alone and ruminating like that would have also been something completely different but they both ended up happy so So bury the hatchet it's easier to forgive when you're happy yeah so much easier and that that rung really true for me as well oh my gosh I loved the stuff with their kids I was cracking up and I loved it the what happens with the bent he gets a little bit into what happens with your mind everything 
I don't want to, but okay, I'll just say, I don't want to give away everything. I'll just say this. What happens with Mr. Bennett is hilarious. It is and the most so, perfect thing that could ever happen. So true to the character. He just lives forever. <laughs> <laughs> still waiting for him Still alive. Die. Wickham is 60 years old and Mr. Bennett is still alive. The, the plot of Pride and Prejudice is all about people freaking out about what happens when Mr. Bennett dies. <laughs> yes. And then he just doesn't. <laughs> Oh, and when he talks about how Mr. Collins is so upset that Mr. Bennett is still alive. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Like Mr. Bennett is like, it's fine. It's cool. Guess what? I just won't ever go anywhere. <laughs> and all of that worrying was for nothing. I know. And what does he say? He says like Mrs. Bennett's like obsession with marriage is just like now it's been passed to a new generation. (laughs) Now the parent, the people who were themselves the subject of like, you have to get married when you get married, when you get married, when you have kids. Uh, Now they're the ones who have the children and now have to worry about (laughs) who they will marry. Oh, I love that. Oh, it was so delicious. It was so good. (laughs) He's just pictured in his library. Oh, that reminds me, Wickham was saying, you know, it starts off, he's in his study and he's like, this is my refuge. And I just, I liked the parallel where like that oh, was, yeah. even though he talks smack about Mr. Bennett being like present, but absent above the fray. I, yeah. I did like this, the, um, the duality there of like both of these men have that space that they carved out, but that's kind of like a guy thing. The man cave. Right? <laughs> exactly. Kevin have a man cave. He doesn't have a man cave, but I essentially make one for him when I go away and read my KJ Charles in bed and let him watch whatever TV he's into that I'm not sport team. He's watching. Yeah. The sports. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't, he gets mad when I'm like, you know, sports because we have to support each other's interests and everything. And I'm sure that you just kind of like self remove. Yeah. I'm just like, you're having man time with the dogs. And he, he would, he would send me pictures all the time from back in Boise. I'm in Portland now. And he and the dogs have joined me in Portland, but he would send me pictures from when we were apart with just him. He's watching sports and both the dogs are on his chest. <laughs> it's just this like clear sausage fest of just he and the dogs growing out, watching some sports. I'm so disappointed to hear that he didn't actually watch the Gilded Age because there was a hysterical picture oh. of him like double thumbs up in front of the HBO Max Gilded Age page. It, it was, was like, the Shaka like rock. Yeah. And I was like, yes, Kevin can be on our podcast about the Gilded Age because I really hope we do one. And then it was like, no, it's just a joke. I still haven't seen any of it. My first Airbnb, the uh, TV was clearly from some country that English is not their first language. So I couldn't understand the instructions. And it it also wouldn't allow me to download any apps. So I couldn't get HBO Match. And I still have not seen it at all. And I feel like so behind. It's better than I thought it would be. Like, well, well, that's a subject for another podcast. I don't know if you want to watch it and then we'll talk about it. I mean, it's not really even Jane Austen adjacent. It's just a costume drama. Um, and it's Julian Fellows. So like it's trash, but I mean, it is the Gilded Age because it is trash, but it's dressed up in this like amazing package. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, back to being Mr. Wickham. Um, it was so good. I don't know. I loved it. I have some <laughs> notes. Let me see if there's anything else I... Oh, um, I, I actually did want to mention. So this was 
filmed to, this was written to be streaming. It was directed to be streamed. It was not ever meant to be performed in front of an audience. It was directed and the the camera was choreographed and the lighting and the sets and everything was done for an at-home viewer. And I thought that was really incredible because it wasn't just like normal theater you will have seen filmed where they just plant a camera in the audience. Um, He actually filmed with his back to the seats. Oh, interesting. Um, And which I loved because the first anecdote he talks about when he sees Lord Byron, he talks about being in the theater and they bring up the lights and you see all the seats behind him. Oh, yeah. So you really feel like you are present in, in the memory. And I thought that was really special. The way it worked, I think they, they did three live streaming performances. So it was not cut. It was not edited. Like it was Adrian Lucas doing it live. And then the third one of that is the one that you can now go back and watch after the fact. And he was saying too, that like each performance had a different feel. Yeah, you, you know, like even the matinee felt more lo- loose, and he's like, I don't know why that is. <laughs> it always seems like matinees are looser. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's one o'clock, man. It's one o'clock. It's brunch. <laughs> you get you get a lot of theater inside baseball at the end if you watch through to the interview with him. And I was astonished when the camera was moving and panning and following him. It was great. It it, it added so much. I was astonished that you couldn't hear it. And they, they incredibly made these cameras on these silent tracks so that it did not detract one little bit from the intimacy of like the one man show and the complete silence. Um, one thing I don't like is to hear eating and drinking sounds. And right. so when he would sip his fake brandy, I would be like, because <laughs> you can't even hear him swallow. <laughs> um, and if you stay watching at the end for the interview, they actually turn the camera and you can see all of the people who are basically behind the camera while he's doing the show, it really is like a peek behind the curtain. And even though it's just a one man show, not even done in front of a live audience, there were probably 10 to 15 people there making it possible while he was filming it. I thought that was really incredible. Another thing I really liked is when they were actively filming it, you could see into the wings beside oh, yeah. him they didn't yeah. try to like cover it up and if you've ever been backstage and it's, it's not impressive like it's, <laughs> right, it's, yeah. just, like, it's usually like just plain like maybe painted black like cinder block walls or whatever and then like you know you have all the pulleys and there's a bunch of tables and stuff like that and ropes and all these things but like I don't know it just made it feel more immediate and real I don't know I really liked that aspect of it 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 finished it started strong and there were some parts in the middle that like I was saying like I thought it was like eh. mm-hmm. but then it finished so strong that like by the end of it I was just like I love this so much like I'm so happy I watched this and like Maggie was texting she watched it first and so like last night or something I think you were uh, yesterday it was three nights it was like two nights ago we're recording this on a Sunday evening and I think we watched it on Friday night and she kept texting me and she was like, Kristen, it's so good. It's and, really then, good. <laughs> and then I'm like, how good could it be? It's a one man show. I, it seems so um, like theater and like something I wouldn't like. And honestly, at the end, and I, I don't know if it's just like an emotional, I'm very emotional right now because of all this stress. Right. But it gets very intimate at the end. And he's like, look, this is my story. I'm flawed. I'm a flawed person. Aren't you? 
you know, he's like, aren't, aren't, aren't we all? And he kind of says something very Mr. Bennedy, like we all exist for the gods to laugh at and I can hear them laughing at me. Yeah. And then he, he wraps up uh, with a sort of a meditation on the bad guys, right? A meditation on the rakes of the world. He says, he's holding the brandy at this point, of course. He says, here's to us rascals. There'd be no story without us. Yeah. And I, um, I weirdly got like kind of teared up about it. I don't know. Like there's no story without adversity. I kind of took it to me. For example, in the MCU, like people love Loki. Why? Because he's the trickster. Like, is he a villain? Adrian Lucas as Wickham asks the audience two questions, one in the beginning and one at the end. The one in the end is like you said, like I'm flawed. Aren't you? The one in the beginning is he says, no, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, no one thinks they're the villain in their own story. Do you? Oh yeah. Do you Like you might be the villain to somebody in life, but do yeah. you think of yourself that way? Of course not. So it's just sort of like, he's priming the audience to keep an open mind. And then he fills in all these blanks to kind of explain and give a fuller picture. But no one's perfect and no one thinks they're the villain. So you just have to remember the way that we all, like you were saying, the prism of humanity and how yeah. we look at each other. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to really be like, no, Wickham was actually a good guy. <laughs> no, no, I don't no. think anyone's going quite there. <laughs> but I mean, say what you will about him. He did. He and Lydia stayed together, had two pretty cool sounding kids or boring, <laughs> I guess, depending on. And then he basically he also, calls his daughter a prig. So yeah, he joined he joined the militia because Denny was like, hey, join the militia. It's great. <laughs> yeah. He went to Waterloo. He fought for his country. He could have died. Right. But he had the bravery to stand on that field and take it. So even Wickham, is he a villain? I don't know. Yeah, that, well, as we talked about Austin before, there's no like deeply evil nobody murders anybody right that we know well i'm sure arnie would disagree (laughs) (laughs) but it's a more it's a more everyday sort of villainy of the things we don't know we're perpetrating on other people and you know i'm sure i'm guilty of that his sins and lydia's sins are thoughtlessness as much as they are and selfishness and sometimes self-aware selfishness like when he runs away from debts or seduces shopkeeper's daughters or whatever it's just run-of-the-mill everyday selfishness well i thought it was really good yeah me too definitely recommend everyone um maybe we can when we share this episode we can attach a link how to how they can stream it because you can stream it through april 30th and so if i'm on the ball by getting this edited and posted. Hopefully people will hear this and then they'll settle in for an evening with George Wickham. <laughs> and what's great is, I don't know. I just love this. You can watch it anytime you want. You can watch it from anywhere. You can watch it on any device. Um, I was fully prepared. I thought Bay wouldn't really be that interested. And I was like grabbing my laptop. I'll go upstairs and watch it in my room, you know? And so we actually did end up streaming it to our like main television, but I could have just watched it however I wanted. I'm glad Bay watched it. It sounded like he was just going to like leave and, and go do a project, but that he stayed because it caught his interest. Yes. This is classic Bayard uh, where a lot, I'll try to get, I'll be like, you need to watch this. It's really good. There's a lot of movies he didn't see as a kid because his parents took ratings very seriously. Mm. So um, I've seen a lot more kind of as a child or a teenager and stuff. I saw a lot more of like 
quote inappropriate movies. And I'll be like, no, you got to watch this. It's a classic. And he'll be hemming and hawing. And I, I know I can just say, give it 20 minutes. If you don't like it, we'll turn it off. And I mean it if he doesn't, but I know that he'll get pulled in. <laughs> so he was like, oh, I'll start it and maybe I'll leave. No, he was like riveted just like I was from the beginning. It's the kind of thing he would love. I mean, he is a, he's the Jane Austen fan, you know, it's yeah. the kind of thing. He actually came in earlier, folks, before we started recording. And he's like, do you need a male perspective? And we were on, like, no, get on, out. <laughs> on being Mr. Wickham, do you want to hear my male perspective? <laughs> I said it and I shut it down. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding. That is what we said. But like, I'm sure he would have had very interesting things to oh, say. Oh, yeah. That's not why yeah. y'all are here. <laughs> Kevin, by the way, does not have interesting things to say about it. He's just been walking around pretending to sip brandy going, <laughs> saying stupid one-man show style oh, uh, self-confessional things please 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 just like write down like one of the things he says and tell me what it is they're not that clever he's basically just repeating half fragments of lines he remembers uh nobody's a villain in their own yeah there's stuff like that (laughs) yeah yeah he's um he has trouble with anything that takes itself too seriously Mm. and sometimes in monologue monologue style theatrical dramatic delivery there's a little bit too much self-awareness in it and a little bit too performancey stagey and it may it puts him on edge he just he can't he can't suspend his disbelief what did he want like wickham to like rip a big one in the middle of it (laughs) now that's true to life (laughs) the guy in his study and like that night after a big birthday celebration, God knows what they ate and drank. And he's just going to be yeah. like hanging around, just like <laughs> burping. <laughs> other I thought it was funny how he kept creeping on the neighbors. Like he kept going back oh, to the yeah. window he's and just like, like looking out to see what was going on. very Mrs. Bennett-ish of just knowing what's going on, snooping on your neighbors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Rather than telling dramatic tales of your time in Waterloo. Just... I don't think I fully appreciated that until I actually ha- lived in a, had my own house when I lived, because I lived in my one bedroom condo on the 16th floor of a high rise for almost 15 years. And like, I knew like when my neighbors were coming in and out, cause I'd hear the door shut and stuff like that. And I just remember my grandmother who was at home all day, obviously she was retired. She like knew intimately the actions of her neighbors their comings and goings and I would just like kind of chuckle to myself like oh grandma like that's so funny and then with the pandemic and lockdown and telework owning a house I'm like so and so's left their house like they're going like (laughs) into it (laughs) and our neighbors across the street they have a huge blonde Labrador named George. And so whenever Bay and I spot George, it's like, George is outside and then we'll <laughs> run across the street to go see George. Are those our, neighbor, people... our other neighbors had a baby. And so if we see the baby, it's like, oh my God, baby Owen's outside. <laughs> Aw. Is that when you rolled down your window and yelled, I love your dog. <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time. Well, I do it my neighbors a lot. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> Yeah, my mother and I, if we're in the car together, we will also just like roll down the windows and yell at folk on the street like, dog. (laughs) (laughs) We were at a red light once in um, Old Town Alexandria, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was, it's, you know, it's like there's some cobblestone streets and it's like very colonial feeling. And this older lady had a stroller with a dog in it. 
And my mom and I like rolled down the windows and we were like, that is such a cute dog. Oh my God. And the woman was like, oh, thank you. You know, I don't see why he shouldn't be able to go out and see the world just because he's gotten old. And then my mom's like, I feel the same way about myself. And And then when the light changed and we left, I was just like, oh, it's a good thing Bay's not here. He would have been horrified. (laughs) I was horrified when I just like shout at folk on the street. The older you get, the less filter I have. And I will say things now to people in elevators or whatever um, that I would have just been terrified as a teen to even look at them or open my mouth. And now, now I just have to make a dumb joke or whatever. Like, is this what happens when you get older? (laughs) Like you definitely are more self. I mean, listen, when you're a teenager and I'm at, as someone who had social anxiety, I'm sure it's even worse, but you just don't want anyone noticing you. Right. So, right. right. But then as you get older, you stop giving. You don't care. Yeah. (laughs) It's better because you stop caring. (laughs) Um, A rule of thumb that I have in terms of like shouting at strangers or making jokes (laughs) at strangers. (laughs) Always make one, always make sure it's positive. Yes. Like, obviously, you never want to yell anything negative. And two, like, if it's a woman, as a woman, it's more acceptable. Like, it would not have been, it's not as acceptable for a guy to be like, oh my God, I love that purse. Do you know what I mean? I've done yeah, that yeah, thing yeah. before. Yeah. But as a, it's like not as threatening to halloo at someone. Halloo at them. When you are also a female. And then if you just like, sometimes you just want to pay someone a a random compliment. I try to do that a lot when I was out in society. Yeah, I do that too. I like that. Almost no one gets mad if you say something nice that a normal person would take. I mean, like I said, Bay is horrified that I just like talk to people in the grocery line or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's positive. um, I'm pretty sure I've shared the story before of the one time it really went wrong when the guy was like, the guy in front of me was buying like cakes and cookies and all of this stuff. And I was like, Oh man, I want to go where you're going. And he's like, no, you don't. It's my mom's funeral. And I was like, worst foot in the mouth moments I've ever had. And I mean, he saw my face and he was like, he obviously felt bad. He was like, I'm sorry. He was like, I forget what he said, but he made me feel better by kind of making a joke in response. (laughs) He he knew, obviously, like, how am I supposed to know? It looks like he's throwing a party. (laughs) (laughs) But that is definitely the best example of like, why did I open my stupid mouth? Well, it's probably weird that he he chose the uh, Star Wars themed uh, birthday cake for his mom's Look, she was a big R2-D2 fan. (laughs) She loved, it was really unexpected. And that was the only cake. (sighs) Not my finest moment. You know what? Maybe that gave him like a laugh later. Yeah. I'm sure he loves to tell that story now. Like (laughs) the awkward (laughs) moment of the stranger. I have a bunch of those um, that I like cherish because someone else's awkwardness for once that, you know, like it wasn't mine. Like, I don't care whatever they said that, you know, it's the horrified look on their face that I cherish because I know that makes me know it doesn't just happen to me. Yeah. One example is when I was working as a trainer for a company and one of the sales guys was there um, at this federal agency to pitch our product 
And he was like, when you buy our product, I'll come and I'll, I'll, I'll teach you how to use it. And the, the federal agency person was like, well, well, you know, your trainers can come and teach us. I was sitting right there and I was a trainer. Right? Your trainers can teach us fine. He's like, oh, our trainers are all so boring. He thought I was from sales. Uh, <laughs> and the, everybody at the table looked at each other and immediately reached me and they said, Kristen's not boring. <laughs> and then the look on his <laughs> what did you say? Oh my God. Um, I just laughed at the time. And then later he, he came up and apologized to me and talked about this. He had to have pull out a whole story about like one time, one of our trainers mm-hmm. was so boring and it lost, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I was just like, don't even worry about it. I thought, it was, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Trainers can be boring. I've seen it. I don't think I'm one of them, but. What's so interesting to me about that story is that it was like an unintentioned dig at you and yeah. you thought it was hilarious. If you had been one of the people sitting around the table who'd witnessed it against another trainer, you would have been horrified <laughs> because you were just talking about how like you hate secondhand embarrassment. Yes, kind of yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, because you were the target, you're like, Oh no, it was so funny. Blah, blah, blah. But I came anybody else. It's like, Oh my God, I was, it was, I had to go throw up later. Because I, <laughs> so I was in so much secondhand embarrassment. Well, the only saving grace for him is that he had never seen me train because he didn't know, he you know, didn't obviously, know. Like, obviously he didn't know. Know. <laughs> so I, did, I couldn't take it personally. <laughs> That's very good. Well, is there anything else that we should cover about being Mr. Wickham, about other media that we've, other uh, Austin related well, media like, we've been um, Other Austin media. Um, so very often adjacent. Um, I have not yet seen the film Cyrano, but it is directed by Joe Wright, who directed the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. And so all the reviews I've read have kind of mentioned how it has that same like sweeping romance feel um so if some of our listeners have seen that and enjoyed it i um didn't know if you were aware of that but it has like kind of an austin connection my mother-in-law saw it and really liked it but oh really really get out i didn't realize it was in theaters because i want to see it so bad i love peter dinklage Um, i love everything he does I think that it's come out when it did like an anticipation of maybe getting like an oscar bump i don't know if anybody got nominated for it um i do know that peter dinklage who stars as Cyrano um, helped. I think he co-wrote it. And also he starred in the Broadway adaptation of it. Oh, he did. Mm -hmm. He was in the original theater production of it. He and his, Oh God, I don't know if this is true. I want to say it's he and his wife who co-wrote it together, but that could be completely wrong. Okay. But don't at me. (laughs) <laughs> I don't have a Twitter, so. <laughs> don't add her for that reason either. <laughs> you can add me and tell me to tell Maggie that she's like, Maggie, wrong. you're such a misogynistic <laughs> asshole. Like he had nothing to do with it. It was just this one. I'm pretty certain he had a hand in the creation of it. Um, but yeah, that has kind of an Austin connection. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've really. Do you want to talk about the Gilded Age? Like if anyone hasn't checked it out yet, I haven't. So okay, like, I really it- love the Gilded Age. So the Gilded Age is an HBO Max, um, HBO slash HBO Max series. Um, it is created and written by Julian Fellows, who, of course, I'm sure you will all know as the creator of Downton Abbey. And it has kind of that same feel, you know, it's like rich people and their servants. It's just set in, um, you know, like New York City is up and coming. There's oil and train tycoons. Um, 
you know, it's that, what is the, when is the Gilded Age exactly? It's like the 1880s and 90s. I feel like, yeah, Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. There was a, you have the new money coming in and the old money is very disdainful of them. Um, Wasn't it Mark Twain? Was that his? He called it the Gilded Age. And I actually think that we're living in another Gilded Age right now uh, because there's just such wealth disparity and there's this like veneer of glamour, but underneath it, like things are rotten. So that's kind of like it gilded, you know, you would have something made of tin and slap a fake gold on it and be yeah. like, oh, it's gold, but it's not really. Um, Sometimes. It's fun. I mean, like I said, it's a soap opera, like all of his shows are, but it looks amazing. It looks so good. Yeah, and sometimes I just need the eye candy of that. It's total eye candy. And it's got great performances. It's got Christine Baranski, who is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, it's She's just like the dowager um, Maggie Smith type. She's just like shooting out one-liners. It's got <laughs> the, uh, the woman who played Miranda in Sex and the City, whose name escaped me. And she ran for mayor in New York. Cynthia Nixon. Yeah, Cynthia Nixon. Um, it's got, it's just got a really, it's got really good people in it. Lots, and of, lots of stage folks you'll recognize if, if you're into theater and stuff like that you'll recognize a lot of people your reference to um maggie uh smith too makes me feel like i need to watch gosford park again so if you're a julian fellows fan gosford park was a movie that's the name of it right yes yeah, be- before he did downton abbey he wrote this movie which has a lot of similar kind of setup to downton abbey and it's a it's a but it's a um, uh, British, I believe it's a murder mystery. It's a whodunit. It's, it's a whodunit. It's, it's yeah. Downton Abbey if there was a murder. And that's but so good. I rewatched it recent, not recently in the last couple of years. And I remember being so surprised how long it took for anyone to die. Yeah. <laughs> like an hour in before the murder. The other um, thing it is. It does have Mr. Knightley though. Jeremy Northam? Mm-hmm. Or, or Johnny Flynn. No, it has Jeremy Northam. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure the other guy probably wasn't born. <laughs> <when that happened. laughs> Yeah, this movie's been out for quite a while. I think I saw it with my mom, like, one of the first years of college. Turn the subtitles on and be warned, many of the characters have similar coloring and hairstyles. So if you're face blind like me, you will be confused. But it's one of those movies where everyone is a, hey, it's that guy or a, hey, it's that guy. Yeah, yeah. They'll look vaguely familiar. I want to say Helen Mirren is in it. Really? I don't know if that's true. Um, but like, you'll recognize everybody. Yeah. You, yeah. But that, um, is, that is a good companion. I mean, that's very Julian follows. It's very on brand for him. Um, let me see. There, what else have I been watching? I saw I the Batman. That, oh, yeah. You saw the Batman. I haven't I saw seen the Batman. It. I'm obsessed with it. I have never in my life wanted to see a superhero, felt the need to see a superhero movie again right after i watched out of the walked out of the theater i am obsessed i loved it so much it was incredibly long it really should have been kevin and i when i walked out of the theater i was like wow that's the best season of television i've ever seen yeah because it (laughs) seems to be that it's about half hours like you could tighten it up by about 30 minutes quite easily you could have also expanded it into six hours and made it episodic and it would it was so rich with detail like i would have watched all of it i would have binged it because it was so good. So I'm obsessed with the with that movie. Um, I also have, I know I mentioned KJ Charles earlier. I've reread all of her books three times now. They've gotten me through this move. She's such an incredible author. If you like Regency stories, if you like um, really, if you like the golden age, 
um, like mm-hmm. after World War One, but before World War Two in Britain, the great young thing, uh, the, not great young things, but the bright young things. And, you know, all of that glitz and glamour. Um, her her uh, series set in that time is one of my favorites ever. The book that starts it is entitled Slippery Creatures, and it's so good. It's about a World War One soldier who was a trench raider which is like this very vicious like they had to go silently into the german trenches Mm -hmm. and you know sneak up behind people and kill them so he's he's had this horrible war and uh, he finds himself in the center of a mystery and then this person who's trying to help him was um a, a conscientious objector and a bolshevik and didn't go to the war and of course they have these different ideals but this this incredible attraction <laughs> yeah. it just becomes this great male male romance that I've read it so many times so yeah if you're looking for a new read she's got me she just has become my go-to she's got me through this this move anything else to recommend um what I'm reading right now is I'm on the second book of the court of thorns and roses oh, yeah. series by Sarah J Moss and I guess I don't know if it's technically young adult. Is it young adult? I think it might be young adult. Yeah. I um, think anyway, it's-, it's all about, it's like fantasy and it's all about like the Fae and stuff like that. And I just eat that shit up. Uh, so I'm really, <laughs> and it's darker than I thought it would be. It's much more kind of interesting and darker and I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. I remember getting really into this. It's books. like a fractured fairy tale kind of twist thing. Like the first yeah, one yeah. is very beauty and the beast, but like it's darker and more interesting, I think. And I was just rereading Uprooted, which I've talked about on the podcast before, mm-hmm. which is Naomi Novik. And yes. um, it's the one that I got in trouble for liking because the hero is sort of mean to the heroine for most of the book. And people are like, you're what's wrong with America. Oh, <laughs> you like this abusive relationship. Anyway, yeah, um, but, but as it's long as you recognize story. it and talk about it and take it so as good. like a, a critical analysis type point of view, I think you're fine. The writing is so good. Oh my God. I love um, Novik. Every time we talk about the Napoleonic War, I just think about her Tamarir series. Yes. Um, which is Napoleonic War, but what if there were dragons? Yeah, it's I know. So <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I can't believe, Maggie, that we got through this whole podcast and you didn't start singing ABBA. Waterloo couldn't escape if I wanted to. Do, 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 Waterloo. Knowing my fate is to be with you. Finally facing my Waterloo. Now that is funny too, because the other day I have never seen Mamma Mia 2. I have no desire to see Mamma Mia 2. I spent like 30 minutes reading the Vulture article oral history of the ending of Mamma Mia 2. Like apparently it's very famous, crazy, climactic thing. And I just spent a whole bunch of time on my work day. <laughs> and I kept sharing things about it to Bay because we share an office for tell. And he was like, why are you reading this? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> well, and it's just so weird too. I mean, culturally, like, I, I mean, why do we lose a horrible battle? People died. A lot of people died. It was vicious and like. You know, it was just a. It wasn't even really that much longer ago than like the American Civil War, but like no one's like singing like Gettysburg. Yeah. You know, like By Gettysburg. <laughs> you know, no one like referenced memory, it that memory way. Fades. The thing is, you have to remember too, um, with Europe. Once you hit World War One, the Napoleonic War seems very quaint. Yeah, and so okay. like the horrors of World War One and World War II from a European perspective, I think render 
Napoleon and Waterloo just lower on the scale. A happy memory in comparison. So yeah, but I think that like it kind of sprung out of, and also, I don't know, maybe Pride and Prejudice is a good example of that. Like your everyday Brit- British person was kind of removed from what it might've been happening. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't want to say that, but I just think it's different now. Like um, with the horrors of the 20th century, talking about like a famous battle in that sense doesn't seem from the like 1800s doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Yeah. That actually makes sense that uh, now it can be metaphor. Yeah, exactly. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just remember, I mean, obviously like uh, as a kid growing up, like kind of world war two is kind of the, the big war that's talked about the most and is reflected in media and movies and things the most. And then I remember learning about Napoleon and being like France, tried to what because they are just you know they're they were just uh, you hear about the french resistance and they were taken by the germans and all of this stuff and so the idea that france itself had tried to march across europe was very like cognitive dissonance to me as a teenager for a long time it did like it did seem like europe was just the source of but I mean, that's just because of Eurocent- Eurocentric history, I guess. Well, and then I read a biography about uh, Peter the Great from Russia after I went to St. Petersburg, and he was in a huge rivalry with the Swedish Empire. And I was like, the Swedish Empire? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so in conclusion, um, <laughs> as I try to bring us back on the rails, I just want to say that this is a obviously very difficult time for everybody right now. Like there is actively a war being fought. Um, I'm of course re- referring to what's happening in Ukraine right now. And uh, in comparison, you know, our podcast is, you know, kind of frivolous and, but I hope I hope that maybe we're able to give everyone a distraction and maybe a smile. I I have personally, my anxiety has reached like March, April, 2020 levels. Yeah. Um, It's been a real difficult time and everything has hit me a lot harder since I've had my own kid, like thinking about these families and stuff who are either fleeing or still stuck there. Uh, So anyway, I hope that maybe we can just... I don't know. A distraction, momentary distraction. Maybe we help you sleep. I now listen to audiobooks when I'm trying to fall asleep, but I have yeah. to pick something that's not too emotionally um right. It's um, hard to I personally like um calming rain playlists. Oh yeah, the um the white noise. Yeah, those are really relaxed. I listen to them when I work actually. I find them very relaxing as background music. Um, like not to get all heavy, but like being Wickham, I thought was just a perfect, like 60 minute. I completely took my mind off everything that was going on. I was just in it in the moment and yeah. I'll pay. What is, what is the, what is the pound <laughs> equivalent? Days? I would the pound pay sterling. $27 <laughs> <Yeah. for that. laughs> They should have priced it in guineas. Then everybody uh, would just be incredibly freaking confused. Or shillings. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) it's like the. God, I hope that my credit card doesn't like slap a fee on there for like Mm. currency conversion. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe you have to pay that weird ass VAT tax that nobody knows what it means. Oh yeah, the VAT. And they're like, well, you can't if you fill out a form every time you buy something. (laughs) Does anybody actually do that? I've never done it. I've gone to Europe a lot. I've literally never put in to get the VAT back. (laughs) If you've done that, you know what? I have a lot of respect for you. That's a lot of paperwork when you're on vacation. (laughs) I can't even remember to put my Sky Miles number in for the airline tickets. (laughs) I'm just like, do I have my passport? That's I know, I'm I doing know. great. Uh, Kristen, do we have any mail we want to talk about? Um, do we need to go to the wheat chief. I don't. Yeah, you can say no. That's fine. It's been kind of quiet. And it's my fault because there are one or two emails that um, I do owe people, but I've just decided to be like super, just conserve my own energy and I will definitely get back to you when things settle down a little bit. I think everyone's okay with it. I mean, you moved basically by yourself because Kevin had to stay and finish up his job. You're starting a new job. You're not even in your new house yet. You're in an Airbnb. I think everyone will grant you some grace on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. But we're doing a podcast, which is something. I mean, this was a big even farther away from me. But you live, you live now by other people I know. So maybe I'll be able to. Come yeah. Back. So you can actually visit me. I mean, I visited you in Boise that one time. I mean, you can more easily visit me. Yes. All righty. Well, unless you have any other final thoughts, I guess we can say that we have delighted everyone long enough. That's right. We hope everyone is well and safe and hang in there. We're thinking of you. Everything was, will be okay. <laughs> Relatively. Yeah. All right. We, we have, um, we have podcasted long enough. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully you're delighted. Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're not with sorry. I hope you're delighted. We've done our best. <laughs> Bye everybody. Bye.